Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by Citico, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from Citico, and I'm here at the Manchester Museum with Nick Merriman, the museum's director. The Manchester Museum is the leading university museum in the country and acts as something of a smaller version of the British Museum, having a similar variety of collections. It sits in a fine waterhouse building on Oxford Road, something of a beacon of calm besides one of our busiest streets. Nick, back to the beginning. What's the history of the museum? Well, the museum, uh, as you said, is a a university museum, but um, that came about as a complete accident, really. The collections were formed in the early part of the 19th century when the Manchester Natural History Society was founded by a group of sort of gentleman scholars who were generally merchants, you know, made their money in in international trade. um, uh, And as part of that international trade, of course, new parts of the world were being opened up new discoveries made, uh, new animals, insects, plants, and and cultures around the world. Um, and they got very interested in collecting them to try and understand them better, and often amassed private collections, which many of them then uh, brought to uh, the Manchester Natural History Society for show. And uh, the society eventually ended up buying uh, a premises in St. Peter's Square, uh, which the first Manchester Museum was there. And it was open uh, to members of the society. And then members of the public could pay a penny to get in. So I'm afraid not that many people uh, actually did go in. Um, It merged with the Manchester Geological Society in the uh, early part of the 19th century as well. And to cut a long story short, uh, actually this was what happened in many cities in the UK. These collections were formed by um, Victorian societies, which then got into financial difficulty. The collection was offered to the city of Manchester, but it declined because it had recently spent quite a lot of money on the new Manchester Art Gallery. And after a bit of wrangling, the collections went to John Owen's College, which was then in Key Street, but was looking for new premises along the Oxford Road. And um, so uh, when Alfred Waterhouse was charged to design part of the new campus down here, the museum was an integral part of the university because in those days to teach new disciplines like zoology and botany and so on. You had to have the specimens themselves. So it was a a big advantage to the nascent university as it was becoming to actually have access to those collections from all over the world. No, absolutely, because the first professors of the university actually did their teaching in the museum's galleries um, using the museum specimens because they were still you know, wrestling with ideas about evolution, whether it was true and how old was the earth. And you needed the actual evidence, the hard hard facts to be able to uh, back it up. And then shortly after the museum opened, it was just a museum of natural history to begin with, um, it also started collecting Egyptology, anthropology and archaeology as well. And uh, a wing was opened in uh, 1912 uh, to accommodate all of those collections. And the museum's grown then, sort of adding new spaces every few decades. Uh, And was that a deliberate uh, policy by the university that they needed those new collections and new wings? Or was it uh, driven by the interests of the chief curator or whatever the director was called at that time? A a bit of both. Um, I think um, the the Manchester Natural History Society had um, obtained a few curios, including um, a very early mummy called Azru, who was unwrapped in the probably in the late 18th century before it even came into the collections, and is still here on display. Um, but of course, they realised that there were huge discoveries still still to be made in terms of human history, and particularly there was this um, almost mania around ancient Egypt. Um, 
specifically for ancient Egypt, actually um, a Manchester textile merchant called Jesse Howarth um, went on a Nile cruise in the late 19th century and kind of got bit, bitten by the bug of Egyptology and funded the excavations of a, a pioneering archaeologist called Sir Flinders Petrie. And in return, he got a proportion of Petrie's uh, excavation finds, which went to his private collection, which he then donated to the university, and brilliantly donated enough money to build a new wing. So as ever, universities take advantage of academic needs alongside philanthropic offers. Yes, having, having worked in the, in the same sector, I remember that thing of um, getting donations and just looking at each other and going, I haven't really got anywhere to put that, but actually having somebody build you a wing to put those collections in, very useful. It was an offer they couldn't refuse, I think. Um, was there, as they, as they built it up, was there an element of competition with other cities um, to get the best collections and uh, the best way of presenting them as well? Because it's an incredibly fine building. Uh, yes, well, um, clearly Manchester in its sort of 19th century heyday saw itself as better than any other city probably in the world, and it kind of ignored London, really. Well, we did a podcast with Jonathan Schofield on King Street, and uh, part of that, and indeed one upcoming on St. Anne's, and he actually went through some of the earnings figures of some of the great and the good in the 1850s, 1860s, which were, of course, Manchester was the richest city in the world. So you'd think if you want part of that, or had the richest in, some of the richest individuals in the world anyway, so if you want that legacy to be continuing, presumably you'd put it into art, collections, and, and so on. Yes, and hence the Art Treasures of England uh, massive exhibition, the largest art show ever done, was in Manchester, as you know. Um, and I think the thinking behind the Manchester Museum was that it was a kind of British museum, as you say, but also a natural history museum rolled into one. The, the original British Museum had natural history collections, which were separated off into the South Kensington Museum in the um, uh, sort of later 19th century. And this was Manchester's Museum for the World, because Manchester was a world city. Obviously, it always uh, sort of cast a, a slightly um, uh, disapproving eye to the port city in the, uh, on the west, um, uh, which, you know, has itself very grand buildings and a very grand museum. I wouldn't say there were ever necessarily competitors, as Manchester Museum in its early stages very, was very much a university museum about the world and about academic knowledge of the world, uh, whereas, of course, um, the, the, the Liverpool Museum, as it was then, was a, a grand civic museum with slightly different sort of aims. So how did the museum evolve and when did it become as much a public attraction as a part of the university? It was always open to the public from the very beginning, but um, we know from just looking at records of visitors that you know people didn't come in huge numbers when it first opened. It actually, though, uh, has always had a very strong school service, so it actually has the, the longest operating free school service of any museum in the country. And... Um, Pretty well every child uh, today who's certainly a primary school age in the Manchester area comes to the museum because you can learn about, as I say, different parts of the world, particularly Egyptology, which is on the curriculum. So it's always been the kind of museum that kids went to and they'd often bring their, their families to as well. Uh, it had a whole sort of lecture series in the 19th century and early 20th century, art classes and so on, museum club. Um, I guess um, it, it sort of pottered on in that way until after the Second World War when it, museums as a whole began to 
slowly, as they picked the, as, as public funding picked up after a very slow period in the 1950s because of the priorities being in, in different areas in cities, um, from the 1960s, museums were beginning to get a much more general social purpose. And actually, Manchester Museum was in very much in the forefront of that uh, because it had a, a succession of very sort of outward-looking directors. Um, new wings were added in the 1970s as we moved into sort of new buildings as they became available from uh, other parts of the university. Um, there was a high point in, I think, uh, 1971 when um, the museum had probably its most uh, spectacular exhibition ever where it had a piece of the moon rock displayed. Um, you know, there were tens of thousands of people came over a very short period to actually look at this picture, this piece of moon rock that it was sort of on tour from NASA. Um, so there's been some a certain element of, of sort of showbiz uh, creeping in. Then really my predecessor, Tristram Besterman, in the uh, late 1990s, when we really got Heritage Lottery Fund money for the first time available to refurbish museums, which were... Had, often been quite out of date for several generations, um, added things like lifts in uh, for the first time, so it became accessible to people who were not as mobile as, as others, um, got a decent shop, a decent temporary exhibition space, uh, and so on, and became much more of a, a modern visitor attraction. So that's really only happened in the last 25 years or so. And obviously you're still part of uh, the university and uh, as the posters have downstairs, still very proud to be part of the university. So how does that relationship work? I mean, how does academic work uh, work within uh, your space? Well, um, I think a generation or so ago, um, uh, and this isn't unique to Manchester, universities were um, sometimes not sure why they had these great collections. They had used them in the 19th century directly for teaching. Gradually, teaching moved away from specimens into laboratories and into lecture halls with slides and then, you know, PowerPoint latterly. And they were left often with these collections which were not used very much. Um, so the reinvention of the Manchester Museum over the last sort of couple of, of decades has, has been particularly around the museum's ability to um, uh, allowing researchers to engage with much wider publics. So now in um, research funding terms, uh, you're assessed not just in your ability to publish in peer-reviewed journals to your peers, but also your impact on the wider world. In areas like medicine, for example, this is pretty easy uh, to show. But in uh, humanities areas and in some other areas of science, it's much more difficult to, to do. But an exhibition, for example, that engages a very wide uh, public on a new aspect of research actually brings um, reputational and financial rewards uh, for, the, for the parent body, the university. So Manchester Museum's recent exhibitions over the last sort of eight to ten years have been largely driven by new research that we bring to the wider public for the first time so for a, it has to be a it has to be a subject that sort of the public are, uh, sort of um, can connect with so um, we did a very successful exhibition uh, recently on animal mummies people have heard about human mummies they know all about them but there were actually millions of animal mummies from ancient egypt and the University of Manchester had done a major research project funded by the Leverhulme Trust on uh, scanning animal mummies to see what was inside them and producing some amazing results, which um, I won't go into now, but um, they uh, in, in involved um, sometimes people faking what was inside the mummies in order to probably sell them as uh, gifts to give at, uh, at temples.
and, and an exhibition that um, is going to get children involved and everybody involved because it's uh, it has that sort of exotic appeal to everybody. Yes, I mean, basically, dinosaurs, mummies and Romans are usually the things that we know will have visitors flocking in. So we try and bring in sort of one variation on those uh, at least once a year. And then finding the right balance between those sort of exhibitions and possibly the, the harder-edge ones, because you've done an awful lot around conservation as well, particularly. Yes, no, it's, it's absolutely not all about um, sort of just um, enjoyable, diverting exhibitions. Um, the Manchester Museum actually just has two objectives... Uh, promoting uh, a sustainable world and working towards uh, uh, intercultural understanding. And so we've um, actually developed a much more campaigning series of exhibitions, particularly around the environment. Um, we had a lot of internal discussions about what the role of a museum is in the midst of climate change and loss of biodiversity. And we feel um, it's not sufficient just to report it, but actually that we ought to be active about it. It's pretty clear, for example, that we're now in the Earth's sixth great extinction phase in the history of the Earth. The last one was 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs became extinct. So it really is very serious. What our challenge has been is to do something that can actually animate people to action rather than feeling overwhelmed about the enormity of it all. So uh, recent exhibitions on extinction and then on climate change have very much been about mobilising people to take small actions in their own lives it's the Greenpeace, you know, think global, act local thing. Say, yes, you can do something in your own life which can have an impact on this. So, again, that's really important way in which we can uh, harness the expertise in the university to, and bring in quite diverse publics to have quite a big impact. Really, that's the ultimate aim of all of our work. Um, now, obviously, we've been living in an age of austerity, so-called. So, um, what are the challenges for you and for the museum in the current funding environment? Um, Obviously, a lot of museums, a lot of cultural venues have to work more with the corporate sector than they probably did, which may not have been a bad thing to put them in that situation. Um, have to look at a lot more events that are on and sometimes charging exhibitions or whatever. So um, how have you managed to build the revenue to support mm -hmm. what's presumably a reducing public grant? Uh, and, and how do you manage to keep the balance between not going too far in that direction? Yeah, Yes, of course, you know, like everybody, we've been affected in downturns in public funding. So we've done it with, I suppose, a fairly typical mix of uh, cost cutting. So we have lost staff over, over the years um, uh, and changing the sort of configuration of the staff. So we've kind of got the right um, shape of the organisation for the challenges um, in the future. Um, and as you say, increasing revenue. So like most museums, and this, this is a big change from when I started out, um, we, we do weddings. Um, uh, we haven't yet done funerals, um, but um, we're, open, we're open to that. Is that as under the dinosaur that you <laughs> Yes, well, well certainly, um, strangely enough, the uh, wedding business came a few years ago now when um, we were approached by, uh, believe it or not, a DJ on rock radio, which plays, of course, rock music, who thought it would be really amusing to get married in our rock gallery which is, you know, where we have our rocks and minerals and fossils. And uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, we ended up doing a kind of mass wedding of uh, heavy metal enthusiasts um, in the museum. And we thought, oh, well, there's something in this, because it was, you know, it was reasonably profitable. So, of course, as you said, it's all about balance. So we're not a wedding venue business. We're not a hotel, whatever. So 
We have to limit the number of weddings that we do each year and we charge appropriately because we're a kind of distinctive venue. We do venue hire, but again, um, our, we, our galleries, which are our chief asset, um, are the things that people are interested in. That's where we compete with hotels, which perhaps have rather um, sort of similar um, uh, sort of conference rooms. We, we try to do something that's distinctive. Um, the big area for the future is actually enhancing people's donations. Um, the university have never wanted us to charge entry, and we wouldn't like to do that because um, research shows that um, whatever you do, if you introduce an admission charge, you never widen your audiences. It's kind of you can get away with charging and you can certainly increase your revenue, but we're all about increasing access. Um, but um, what we don't, museum, what museums don't generally do so well is to get across the message that they're charities and that they receive public funding in order to try and uh, be free. So we're, at the moment, we only have, I think, a donation per head of eight pence per visitor. We want to get that up to... 30, 40 ideally, and that would generate sufficient revenue for us to increase our exhibition programme, for example, at the moment. And that's something that uh, museums in, in this country particularly, and cultural venues in this, this country particularly, uh, do far less well than in the States where you cannot walk into a museum or a, or a gallery without walls and walls of... I mean, legacies is one thing, of course, as well, but also yep. uh, you walk into the a number of museums around the States which are officially free, but you can't actually get in without giving quite a substantial donation without a large argument with the security guard, which obviously isn't a route that you, you would want to go down. But um, that ability to get either sponsorship or, or legacies is so in, in, in a, a far more advanced state in the States and in, I guess, in France and Germany and, and Europe as well. Why, why do you think that we haven't been so good, about, good at that? Um, I, I think it's partly to do with kind of being British um, and being polite. Not wanting to ask. Not basically. wanting to ask, exactly. Um, I think, it, as you know, it's been a government policy since 1997 that the National Museums and Galleries should be free. Um, whereas, in, of course, you know, the large number of tourists that come to those museums are often slightly surprised that they're free because they would be expecting to pay in, in other countries. But it has established that principle of free museums. I mean, only about half the museums in the UK are actually free because a lot are independent and, and have to charge. But generally, the national and, certain, and the local authority museums and the university museums tend to be free. Uh, many of them, of course, charge for temporary exhibitions and so on to cover costs. Um, I think in London has got very good, actually, at um, uh, philanthropy, about sponsorship from individuals and trusts and foundations and businesses to uh, maintain free access or to provide free access for educational groups or whatever it may be. Outside London, generally we've found philanthropy just much harder to get because of the... Uh, a greater concentration of wealthy people in London, uh, perhaps, um, say, in Manchester, a lot of the money being slightly newer money with people choosing to spend their, uh, their money in different charitable purposes uh, away from culture. So I think there's still a big argument, a big advocacy campaign we have to make uh, with um, sort of younger entrepreneurs about uh, the value of culture in terms of their own legacy, 
um, and I'll perhaps go on to say something about that in a moment when we talk about future projects. Um, and I, I confess, Manchester Museum, that's one big area that we need to do better on. Um, we've generally uh, been very successful with trusts and foundations because uh, they have a recognised process, we have a very good hit rate. Um, with individuals, um, it's much less certain. It's a bit like, you know, sometimes asking for legacies. It's a very, very long-term game, and sometimes you have a very short-term need. Unfortunately, you can you can hear yes, but then when that final piece of paper is yes. read, look out and then go, oh, they didn't. Yeah, you don't know when it's going to be. Yeah, um, and I, and I think one of the issues possibly has also been actually for many outsiders it appears that the museum sector has been doing extremely well because there's been an awful lot of money for capital projects. Uh, and most people don't understand the difference between capital and revenue, of course. Um, so understanding that, that you may build a new wing and you may get HLF funding or whatever that is to build a new wing, and that's, that's beautiful and brilliant, but actually that still doesn't help your day-to-day, -day, though presumably you put in a nice new cafe and whatever, it doesn't help your day-to-day -day revenue. And so it may actually act against your ability to ask for that money because an awful lot of people are just seeing new buildings sprout up or new roofs go on or whatever it is and, and, and thinking everything is hunky-dory in this world. No, that's absolutely right. And I think it's one of the big challenges for uh, the Heritage Lottery Fund, which has been the main capital funder for museums, is that um, despite their best efforts and their scrutiny of the business plans and so on, sometimes museums haven't been able to uh, make themselves any more sustainable and sometimes less sustainable when they've had a major capital project because it hasn't fundamentally altered their ability to enhance their revenue. And I, I, know, I know that they're looking at this much more um, carefully now. And I think we may, for all sorts of reasons, not the least the decline in lottery ticket sales, be um, coming towards the end of a sort of golden period of capital investment for the current generation and looking towards perhaps not greater expansion of museums, uh, uh, or certainly more museums, but consolidation of what we've got and to making them really sustainable financially. And that could be sometimes uh, what, what we ought to be building up much more is endowments, for example, that will you know, generate a little bit more revenue uh, than we have at the moment. It's interesting that we still have, I mean, I know it's not for the Manchester Museum, but uh, that national model where... Uh, as you as you say, it is bizarre to go to the V&A um, or the Natural History Museum to see about 90% of the audience be uh, foreign tourists, none of whom are paying. Um, and it, it is strange when you would assume that they probably would expect to pay something and there is a revenue being missed there. And we've seen in lo some local authority museums, of course, like Leeds does it, um, where it's free for people who live within Leeds, but you have to take along a council tax bill or a breeze card or whatever it is in Leeds mm. um, to sort of prove that. It's, it, you're charged if you're outside. Um, and on a bigger scale, do you think there will be a move that national museums will start to look at charging at least for tourists or for some categories? I obviously can't speak on behalf of any government, but uh, I think when it's been put to government, uh, it's still a very strong plank of their policy towards culture is to allow free access. Um, obviously, bringing free national museums or the great national museums and galleries that we have in London and in Wales and Scotland are a significant draw for tourists. And obviously, the uh, the GVA that they bring, the spend that they bring in hotels and elsewhere, the jobs they support, um, is huge. Now, I doubt it would massively decline if the, the museums and galleries started introducing charges, but I've talked to some museum directors about this, and they very much feel that what we have in London, in our national museums and galleries, are for the world. 
uh, and they wouldn't want to discriminate between a Chinese tourist and a visitor from Wembley, for example. They're all citizens of the world, for example, and they feel that their museums and galleries provide that function. Added to which I could imagine the nightmare on the way in, actually, of trying to sort through passports and various other things. Um, more widely, then, uh, obviously we're in an age of... Uh, where everything is digitized, um, everything is available, supposedly, uh, on the net, good and bad. Um, so how do you keep a museum of objects up to date and relevant and uh, matching up to that world where a child of six can operate an iPad and see everything that there is to see in the world? Uh, I th think um, by simply concentrating on the actual objects. I mean, it sounds terribly old-fashioned, but um, when we've... Over the, over the recent sort of 10 years, actually, we've uh, refurbished pretty well all of the galleries in Manchester Museum. And the reason they've been so popular, so our, our visitor numbers have doubled in that period, is that we focus actually on the wonder and authenticity of the object. And, you know, my kids, you know, they're 16 and 20 now, and they really like going to museums because actually everything is mediated through a flat screen at the moment. And we know through the internet and these phenomena of false news and so on, it's actually quite difficult to sometimes discern truth from reality. And actually, I think there's a hunger for the authentic. And you can see that in live, the importance of live music and other live performances, the experience economy. And museums offer a version of that because um, they're still amongst the few trusted public institutions where people from all backgrounds can come together and hopefully we've dismantled a lot of the barriers to, to participation and mingle and learn from each other and learn from the displays. We also actually allow, we're fairly relaxed about handling of the objects in Manchester Museum. So on any given day you can visit and you can usually touch a range of objects and have somebody friendly talk to you about them as well as look at the stuff behind glass. And actually because our collections are full of wonderful, weird and curious specimens from around the world, Children and adults seem to be um, seem to really connect with the fascination of uh, seeing things that they didn't know about. Even if you can perhaps look up pictures of them on the internet, coming close to real, authentic things seems to be uh, something uh, that they really appreciate, and they're not being kind of sold something in inverted commas. The the fact that we are, in the true sense of the word, disinterested, not uninterested, but disinterested, we're purveyors of knowledge and information, fueling learning and curiosity, I think um, has put museums in a very good position over the last 10 years as they've actually made themselves more accessible as well. And for you, and I think for a lot of other museums, I think that there is the point that you raised earlier, which is this, this idea that sort of every child within Manchester will come here and um, when they then visit with their parents or when they grow up to be parents themselves and then visit with their children, there is... Uh, certainly a warmth and a nostalgia and it is seen as that place for bonding and civic bonding. I remember going um, to the, I can't even remember what it was called at the time, what is now the National Media, Media Museum, I know it's probably changed its name again, um, and remember and seeing uh, a family group that was on the old flying carpet blue screen just before it took, and it was parents who had gone, I think the second or the third week that that had been installed and now had their kids in front of it, mm. and just that glow of affection and nostalgia for it. Now, you've, you've got generations and generations. I remember uh, Urbis when I was talking about museums and museum objects, and I broke people's hearts by, having, by informing them, and I just said it in passing, that 
a certain dinosaur was actually a cast and not the real, real thing. That people went white. Yeah. Um, so, but I think that, that that combination that you have because of those generations of that, that nostalgia that, pe that people can mm. have and that real investment in some of the objects that they know about those objects is so, so powerful for them. Yes, no, absolutely. We, we, we're, we're very lucky that we've got that support. It can sometimes mean that people don't like anything to change. So we have had to, you know, uh, manage people's expectations when we refurbish these galleries. And um, uh, as I said to my colleagues laughingly, you know, we mustn't throw out the stuffed tiger with the bathwater. You know, we must make sure that the key objects are still there, which they are, but in, in slightly different contexts. But also that affection and nostalgia has served us really well in the harder times because um, uh, we've unfortunately ha had, to cat, uh, had to cut our marketing budgets. So we don't do a lot of print investment and poster advertising now, but we um, massively uh, benefit from word of mouth and recommendation and, of course, social media, which is the kind of equivalent, really, these days. So our visitor numbers have increased while we've moved away from traditional marketing to word of mouth and social media recommendations. Yeah, and talking of social media, I mean, you do have a number of your curators on Twitter, and actually that is... It doesn't feel at all like a corporately, like corporately controlled accounts. They are uh, full of personality and actually talking about, with excitement and passion, about their subject areas, which is the best way to get people engaged and, and following and talking. Talking about it. No, absolutely. We're, we're part of a university, as I've said, and the, you know, uh, universities are full of um, exciting but sometimes uh, difficult to manage academics. So we've, in a way, decided we're, we're not a big corporation, as you say, and we should um, be really clear about our two messages about intercultural understanding and sustainability. And as long as everybody understands that, what that's what it's all about, and it's about making a difference in the world today, not just looking nostalgically back at the past. Um, very happy to, for uh, our sort of different uh, channels and individuals to have their own voices. I think one of your curators has, has a nickname, Manchester Paleo or Paleo Manchester? Paleo Manchester. Paleo yeah. Manchester, which always amuses me because it long predates the um, Paleo diet, but I do wonder how many followers they get thinking yeah. that that's something to do with the Paleo diet. Oh, he's very healthy as well. <laughs> oh, good, that's very good. Um, in Manchester itself, I mean, what do you think the role of the museum is here? Because, again, you've got that history going back to, what, the 1810s, 1820s. So um, almost in parallel to the art gallery is sort of the, the twin mm. beacons of, of the history of, of, not actually of the city, but of, of part mm. of the soul of the city. Um, where do you think you sit in, in terms of the, the cultural fabric of the city and, and importance to uh, where we're going to be in the 21st century? Well, we, um, I mean, Manchester, as you said, has fantastic venues for historic and contemporary art in the Art Gallery in the Whitworth. It's got brilliant um, venues for, uh, venue for science and technology in the uh, Museum of Science and Industry. And the Manchester Museum is about uh, human cultures and natural environments. So it's where you can find out about the world and its history, uh, the world of people uh, uh, and the world of the environment. Um, and one of the things I say to people is that people always think museums are about the past, but actually they're about the present. So providing services, be they education or uh, skills development or pure enjoyment in the present. But they're also an archive of, for the future. So we've actually got four and a half million objects and specimens. So we've only got an infinitesimal percentage of them out on display. Uh, the, this, it's an archive, uh, like a, a, a time capsule of the 19th and mostly 20th century uh, of the world 
for future generations to, to study. So we're a, a museum of the world for Manchester. Uh, uh, I hope stimulating people who live in Manchester and visit Manchester to see the planet as one thing uh, with an uh, extremely deep history um, and a slightly precarious future uh, that they can actually choose to do something about if we can motivate them to. Um, you talk obviously about that, that mass of objects. Um, I'm interested in, I know also there were some issues around uh, Lindau Mann and, and various others. I'm, I'm quite interested in how you can have that object for 100 years or 150 years and the text and interpretation around those objects can change. Obviously we've seen huge issues around Aboriginal skulls and various other things and, and return. And what you were talking about at the beginning of the idea of um, funding Petrie or his modern equivalent to go down the Nile and, and basically rob um, and return it all to a, mm. a British city or an American city is no longer acceptable by a long way. Um, so um, where you've got that, how do you handle those sort of issues? You know, as, you, as sort of the zeitgeist changes and interpretation changes, are you constantly thinking about the objects that you have where they may become subject to debate? Uh, I think there was a lot of um, uh, heart-searching about this in the 1990s, particularly in relation to indigenous human remains. And actually the Manchester Museum... Uh, was really one of the pioneers in that they decided um, under my predecessor and I, I followed this uh, when he when I took over from him decided to uh, make public all of our holdings of um, human remains relating to indigenous peoples by which we mean you know Maoris from New Zealand Australian Aborigines Native Americans and Canadians and so on uh, make them public uh, by publishing them on our, on our website website and um, inviting uh, descendant groups to make contact with us if they wished to have a discussion with us about their future. And actually that's been tremendously useful um, and uh, uh, actually quite moving because it was fairly rapidly easy, easy to uh, establish that um, no research had been undertaken on these uh, remains and n no useful research was likely ever to be undertaken. And the religious needs of those groups who often feel that the, the spirits of the departed can't rest until they're buried in their sort of native soil, took massive precedence. So I think I'm right in saying that we don't hold any indigenous human remains anymore. Um, if we do, it may be just simply because the provenance is so vague as to say Australia, so it's quite difficult to actually find a descendant group to repatriate it to. Um, so just last week, we, uh, re, no, a couple of weeks ago, we repatriated some Maori, a Maori jawbone to a group who are touring Europe, sort of collecting uh, specimens. So we've been pretty, we're pretty confident, actually, about all of this. Um, uh, it's, the, it's the opportunity to create longer-lasting relationships with people in different parts of the world for whom those objects mean quite a lot, even if ultimately it's meant burying them and losing them uh, to, you know, to science or whatever, whatever that might mean. Um, uh, the, there are, um, to my mind i can't i'm just pausing to think that there aren't any other particular uh, objects that i'm aware of that are likely to be contested for example you always have some people saying you know the museum should hold no human bones at all you know we should bury all the egyptian mummies or whatever actually the egyptian people and the egyptian government uh, are pretty relaxed about uh, egyptological collections around the world they act as kind of ambassadors for egypt and, you know, stimulate people to go and visit Egypt as a country, which, of course, they need at the moment. Um, so, uh, and, you know, you also have to have a view as to the long term. So um, sometimes 
um, say nationally, you'll get calls for repatriation of certain types of collection um, uh, as part of the advancement of a political career of a certain individual. And you have to balance the legitimacy of that claim against the long-term benefits f sometimes for the object as well. So it's really complex. Um, the, generally what we do is take each case um, as, it, as it comes. Um, uh, and I, I used to be chair of the Museums Association Ethics Panel, so a lot of our work was on these questions um, as it was on the sale of collections for, uh, to, to raise funds for museums as well. So you, you, that's where you have to take the long-term public benefit into account. Now, you've been in post here for over 11 years, you're saying. So um, how has the museum sector in Manchester evolved over that time and during that period? Um, uh, very much um, to the benefit, I think, of everybody, um, in that uh, I think when I started in Manchester, um, there was still an approach to audiences and marketing that saw us all as competing with each other for audiences. And so there was a, a reticence to really collaborate and to share um, what our upcoming programmes were or perhaps share our data on audiences because we kind of thought, oh, if we did that, somebody else, we might, you know, our, our, our position might be damaged. It, it took a while for us to realise that um, actually, you know, people, visitors to our institutions don't give two hoots about who funds us or, you know, what our governance arrangements are. And it's all about Manchester. They want Manchester to be interesting and good. And actually, it's much better if we all collaborate and actually push each other, nudge each other, even kick each other to improve quality. And you'll remember this as being part of Urbis. It was the, the, um, the Manchester International Festival was, I think, was a big uh, game changer because it really said what ambition could look like, you know, in its first couple of iterations. It left the building-based organisations that are there all the time to say, well, what do we do for the other 100 and hundred or so weeks of, of, of every two years to show that we can aspire to that kind of quality and ambition as a city. Um, so uh, a number of us who've been in position for about the same amount of time have evolved um, a really good re relationship of trust amongst each other whereby we share um, data, we share programming, we try and collaborate where we can Manchester Museum is actually in a formal partnership with the Whitworth and with Manchester Art Gallery, which as a group gets Arts Council funding to work together. And then we bring in others, invite others over specific programmes. So, I mean, you can, you can see the, the sort of benefits of that by showing that um, actually visitor numbers and the diversity of visitors and the amount of revenue ge uh, income generated for the city has increased over that period quite, quite significantly. Still lots to do, but it's certainly improved. Finally, uh, what's next for the museum? And what are the big projects? Okay. Um, well, as I said, we've um, refurbished pretty well all of our galleries over the last 10, 11 years. Visitor numbers have doubled. Um, and actually, we've become victims of our success because the facilities that we had, when they were put in, some of the new facilities that I mentioned were put in by my predecessor, they were aiming to get 200,000 visitors a year. So the toilets and the lifts were all sort of to do that. We now have about 450,000, 460,000 visitors a year. So we can't quite cope. At the same time, um, we don't have an adequate space for changing temporary exhibitions uh, compared with the spaces at uh, MSI, 
science and industry or at the art galleries. So I ha I've had to keep turning down offers for major touring exhibitions. So World Museum Liverpool in two years is having the Chinese terracotta army. We couldn't take it in Manchester at the moment because we wouldn't have space. So we are going to build into our courtyard, which is where you come through into the museum's entrance, uh, a two-storey building to give us a large temporary exhibition space which will allow us to take international touring shows of environments, human cultures and so on. So terracotta army, dinosaur shows, Egypt, Egyptological shows, that sort of thing. And above it, um, we're having a gallery, permanent gallery on the history and culture of South Asia. And the reason we're doing that is that although our visitor numbers have increased, they haven't diversified in some areas as much as we want, uh, particularly in South Asian communities. 13% of Manchester's population is of South Asian origin. Only about 4% of our visitors are. That's mainly because we don't represent South Asia anywhere. So we're collaborating with the British Museum, who are going to lend most of the objects, um, and we'll have a 300-square-metre permanent gallery telling the entire history of the Indian subcontinent and, crucially, the diaspora, the movement of people from South Asia to Manchester, so that people in Manchester today can bring their kids and say, OK, this is where we came from short-term and long-term. So that's really exciting. It also gives us a new entrance on the other side of the building uh, in Bridgeford Street, which is much closer to Oxford Road. So we'll have a more prominent entrance as well. And that will open in 2020 uh, when we raise all of the final elements of the funding. Yeah, how much of the funding have you still to raise for that? Uh, we've got 1.2 million to raise, but we're, you know... By the same token, we've raised 11.8, so we're doing quite well. So it's the minority that still yeah. has to come. So we, are you aiming to break ground on that anyway without that 1.2? Uh, we need to get through various hurdles. We've got to go back to the Heritage Lottery Fund with the designs up to a certain stage and with a credible fundraising plan. Um, what we hope to do is to get give them reassurance that our fundraising plan will work so that we can begin to break ground with a with some of the money still to raise. But uh, if there's anybody out there uh, listening who wants to be involved, we have very good naming opportunities. Uh, all those uh, new media millionaires in Manchester should be listening to that, definitely. Um, thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. Uh, we'll be talking about other cu cultural venues in the near future. And indeed, uh, Nick will be back talking about his favourite object in the museum uh, just before Christmas. If you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR or through email on podcasts at cityco.com. Cottonmouth Manchester is available on iTunes, Acast and SoundCloud, or direct from the source at cityco.com podcasts. Please leave a review if you like what you hear. Give us some likes, please. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>